hands down, it is the most important part of your garden and it can absolutely make or break your growing success. We're talking about, you guessed it, soil. And in today's episode, I'm going to show you how you can not only figure out what type of soil you're dealing with, because that's something a lot of people don't really understand the importance of, but I'll also share some simple things that you can do right now to drastically improve your chances of long-term garden success. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. So I think it's really common as gardeners, and when we first start out, or maybe even a few years down the road, like, it's easy to take soil for granted. Like I know I totally did that when I first started our garden here on our homestead. I found my spot. I, we dug it up. I raked out the rocks and I started sticking seeds in the ground. And I took zero thought about what earth I was planting in. You know, I thought dirt is dirt and I'm just going to do my thing. Now, interestingly enough, that actually worked out for me. I had some great gardens in those early years, even though that's what I like to call unconscious competence. Like I had no idea what I was doing, but the garden can be really forgiving. And it's also amazing to me how this topic of gardening can be extremely complex. We can talk about biology and microorganisms and soil composition, all this stuff, but it also can be incredibly simple. So much so that a child can grow food or even a bumbling beginner homesteader like me back in the day could grow a whole lot of food. So don't let the information in this episode overwhelm you. I'm providing this more so you can be armed with information because knowledge is power, but I don't want you to feel like you need to go to get a degree in soil biology before you start that first garden because you really don't. But this is just going to be good stuff you can stick in your back pocket and have as you progress. And I think a lot of this stuff will be helpful, even if you've been gardening for a while. Some of this information are things that I really didn't understand until much later in the game, and it just helped my efforts get better and better. So should be good. Um, A lot of this information, or I would have to say one of my best recommended resources on soil uh, and now I'm going to go blank on the name of the book. I've talked about it before. I think it's called The Organic Gardener's Guide to Better Soil by Jean Logsdon. And I will try to remember to stick a link to it in the show notes. It's a great book. And it is not too cerebral and it's not too um, heavy. It's really a great read. It's, I thought it was really interesting. It kept me riveted through the whole book. But I'm also super nerdy, so you know, (laughs) take that with a grain of salt. But he gives some great explanations of how to care for your soil and composting, all that stuff in real normal human terms. So 
If you want to take a deeper dive into this, I highly recommend that resource. Uh, but today I'm just going to give you some of the things that I have figured out and thought about for my garden over the years that have really helped me have more knowledge and be better informed. Okay, the first thing we need to figure out when you're starting a garden or you already have a garden is what type of soil you have. Now, there are a number of different types. The ones that you're going to see referenced most frequently are sand, clay, silt, and loam. Now, most soils or many soils are going to have a combination of those ingredients, if you will, within their composition. Um, and sometimes, depending on where you live, there might be, it might be heavy on one side or the other. Um, so there's a couple ways you can start to figure this out. So first off, I would say if you're really serious about understanding your soil, the best investment you can make is to get a soil test done by a laboratory. And I did this a couple years ago. I think I have an entire podcast episode on this process if you want to check that out. I went to Colorado State University. I mailed in my sample, or no, I had a friend take it down for me, I guess. They do have a, a mail-in option if you're far away from Colorado. Um, either way, drop off or mail-in. I gave this little plastic cup, sent in my soil, and then a few weeks later, they gave me a printout of a lot of awesome data. What type of soil I have, the pH, um, what minerals I have, how much organic matter, things I should add. It was, I think, 30 or 40 bucks, 100% worth that price. And I need to actually do it again. That was a couple years ago, it would behoove me to have it retested. Um, but that test actually stopped me. I was going down a path of too much nitrogen. And that test helped me to stop that and correct it before I caused myself some major problems. So if you want to go that route, I would say you would be really happy with the results, just knowing that you have that information. Now, that being said, if you're wanting some data sooner versus later, and you're a little more of a do-it-yourselfer, um, here's some other ways to figure out what type of soil you have. So the first test would be the touch test. And you could literally can go out to your garden, um, usually get the soil a little bit damp, and you can feel it, and that will give you some information. So if your soil leans toward the sandy side, it's going to feel more gritty, as you would expect sand grains to feel, right? It's not going to be something that even when it's wet that you can pack or shape. It's going to fall through your fingers. It's not going to hold um, a form. So just what you would picture, you know, sand at the beach, maybe not quite that sandy, but if your soil has a lot of sand, it's going to act in a similar fashion. We contrast that with clay. Now go out to your garden and get the soil wet. And if you can roll that soil into like a snake shape, <laughs> I think that's, isn't that the rule when you're a kid and you have Play-Doh, everyone makes snakes. If you can roll it into the snake shape and it gets sticky um, when it's wet, odds are you have a lot of clay in your soil. And this is where we lie here in Wyoming. Um, my kids have these, this little mud kitchen area on our homestead and they will take soil and get it wet and they can make balls and bowls and all sorts of shapes just like they were playing with play-doh and yep we're high in clay here and it shows because literally you could make pottery out of our dirt um 
Okay, so we have sand, we have clay. Silt is the other one. It's not as common to have like a pure silt soil. But if you do have one of the rare occurrences where you have high silt content, it's going to feel slippery and kind of soapy when you get it wet, but it's not going to stick together. So just FYI on that. Um, okay. The other option here would be loam. Now loam is the soil type that everybody wants. It's gardener's best friend. It is the one that people will brag about if they have it. And loam is basically the ultimate balance of all of those other types. So if you have an equal amount of clay, sand, and silt, that would be what we would call a loamy soil. And it's a very good thing. Now, I say that, but just because you may have a soil high in sand or high in clay doesn't mean you're doomed. And there's actually benefits to those as well. So clay, even though it gets a really bad rap, and I will be honest, I have some, in particular, some raised beds that have extra heavy clay content. And they make me say some bad words in the spring because trying to work heavy clay soil is a, is rough. And it will it'll cause you a lot of extra work because it likes to compact and it's heavy. And when it gets wet it sticks together. And it, I remember one year, um, I went to harvest potatoes in my really heavy clay beds. Some of my beds are better and some are worse, but anyway, this bed had a lot of clay, I had potatoes and I didn't wait for it to dry out sufficiently before I started to harvest the potatoes. So it was kind of this damp clay and it was an utter nightmare. Um, and hindsight, I should have just not harvested that day and waited, but I, I, for some reason I was in a hurry and I wanted to get it done. And I was like, the potatoes have to come in today. And I was out there like scraping this wet clay off the potatoes. And then once it dried, it's like cement. It was just, ugh. Um, so all of that complaining to say that clay actually has a lot of nutrients. So if you can handle or work around its difficulty in, tilling and working it and it's uh, propensity to clump and dry and cement like particles it's great nutrients and it's very fertile and I have seen that proven in my instance because even in my beds that are heavy in clay once I get the seeds in the ground I they grow wonderful beans and cabbage and onions um, and even tomatoes believe it or not so the texture's not great but the nutrients are now on the flip side, when we talk about sand, sand is actually lower in nutrients, but it's, it's a lighter soil. So you're not going to have the same issue with it sticking and clumping and sticking to your shovel and sticking to your potatoes. Um, and it also is going to drain better. So if you live in a place or your garden is in like a lower location in your yard where it's collecting water and you have sandy soil, that's going to be great because it's going to help things drain more quickly. Uh, and finally, silt, which I said is less common to have a garden that's primarily silt. Now, it has more nutrients than sand, and it can be super fertile, but it also is prone to erosion and compacting because it is so very fine. So I guess all of these types have pros and cons, pluses and minuses. Um, 
the interesting part about this is no matter what soil type you have, they're all improved by doing one thing. And it, th this thing is the same for all of them. And that is, drum roll please, adding organic matter. You can make clay better with organic matter. You can make sand better with it. You can make silt better with it. And if you have the perfect soil, if you're one of those blessed gardeners with loam, you can maintain your loamy soil with, you guessed it, organic matter. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about organic matter in a minute, but I just want you to know that no matter what you have, you're not doomed, even if you're listening to this going, oh my gosh, I have so much clay or I have so much sand and ah, uh, it's okay. There's ways to work around it as long as you're willing to get creative and put in a little sweat here and there. Um, just helps to know what you're dealing with to start with. Hey friend, I'm interrupting this episode for just a sec to give you a very important reminder. If you have not yet purchased seeds for this year, I would recommend doing that ASAP. We are seeing some pretty crazy seed shortages right now, partially because a lot of people are gardening who didn't in the past, and partially because of some weird COVID stuff. And there's a lot of varieties that are selling out. So now is the time. I get a lot of people asking about my favorite place to order seeds. And one of my absolute favorite companies in the whole wide world is True Leaf Market. They're basically like a giant virtual seed rack. They have tons of heirloom and organic varieties, all the vegetables, herbs, cover crops, flowers, and even microgreens. Plus their seeds have a great germination rate and they ship super fast. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com seeds to do some shopping. And just for my listeners, use code SPRING2021 when you check out to save $10 off your first order of $50 or more. Now, back to our episode. Okay, so we have our soil type figured out. Oh, oh, I almost forgot. Hold on. Rewind. I told you about the touchy-feely test, but I didn't tell you about the other tests that you can do. And this is a really fun test, especially if you're like a homeschool mom like me, and you're always looking for things for your kids to do with you. Um, okay, here's what, here's what you can do. I can't believe I almost forgot this. Oh my gosh. So this can get a little bit, not complicated. It's really not complicated, but it can get a little math heavy. <laughs> so I'm going to drop a link to this in the show notes from Clemson University, where they have a great breakdown article of how to do this. But in a nutshell, here's what you do. Grab a mason jar, good old mason jar. A quart size is fine. Fill it halfway full of soil um, or a third or you know, don't, don't have to be exact. Add some water. And I think I filled it up most of the way with water. And I did add like a teaspoon of granulated laundry soap or dish soap. I think that just kind of helps things stay separated. Um, anyway, and shake it up. Okay. Put the, oh, put the lid on first, obviously. You guys know that. I don't have to tell you that, right? <laughs> okay. Put the lid on, shake it up and let it sit for a day or two. Now you're going to start to see the soil separate into layers. Okay, and these layers are going to be clay, sand, and silt. And then you're going to use the, the link I am sharing with you in the show notes. It's already in there, so I know I'm not going to forget. <laughs> and you can figure out the percentages of what you have in that jar. 
how much percentage is clay and how much percentage is sand and so on. And then there's this really cool triangle graphic. It's all over the internet. Um, it's not a proprietary thing, but it, you go on each side of the triangle and you figure out what percentage of, let's say clay you have, and you follow a line into the middle and where all the lines intersect, it tells you what category of soil you have. So it's really cool. And I mean, is it as exact as Colorado State University's soil test? Probably not, but it gives you some really great information. And I actually discovered that our regular old prairie soil, like the, the top layer is great. We have actually loamy soil that's a little bit on the clay side, but not bad. And the beds, <coughs> excuse me, I'm losing my voice. And the beds that give me the fits that are heavy clay are actually, I didn't realize I had put soil in those beds that was left over from our house remodel. We had, you know, dug our basement and had this big um, pile of dirt and I, we didn't pay attention and we put some of the fill dirt in those beds. So that's why it's so heavy clay. But our top layers of soil are really good. Believe it or not, in dry old Wyoming, the, the land of no trees, we have really good soil. So I learned that from my own home soil test. And I think you'd probably get a kick out of doing it. So go try it. Let me know what you think. Um, if nothing else, it's good to refresh your math skills, right? <laughs> Figuring out percentages. So I, I had fun with it. Okay, now, now we can talk about pH. So along with soil type, it is helpful to know your pH, how acidic or how alkaline your soil may be. Now, to be perfectly honest, this has not been something I have spent a ton of time on because come to find out with when I did my soil test with Colorado State University, our pH is right where it should be. It's kind of your average. I think it's like between six and seven is just an average good pH for most plants. And if you're in that range, you don't really have to worry about it. Um, now that being said, not all areas are going to be balanced. And if you live on more of the eastern half of the United States, you're going to tend to be a little bit more acidic. Not every single person, but that's the trend. And if it's on the western half of the United States, it's a little more alkaline. So it is going to just depend on your particular area. And the reason this is important is because there are some plants who just flat out don't like acidic soil or who don't like alkaline soil. Like, for example, we hear a lot about blueberries. Blueberries are one of those that love acidic soil. So if you're going to grow blueberries, you better make sure that you've done some work in that blueberry patch to make sure that soil is going to suit them. Otherwise, they just might not do anything for you. Um, okay, so let's talk about what constitutes acid or alkaline. So any soil with a pH of above 7 would be considered alkaline. And if it's lower, the pH is lower than 6.5, it's considered acidic. Now you have some options here. Let's say you do your soil test and you figure out that you're on one extreme or the other, right? Too acidic, too alkaline. Your options are you can either leave it as is and then just be careful with how you select your plants and make sure you're selecting plants that can thrive in your particular soil type. That's an option. Or you can 
do some amendments to try to improve your situation. Now, keep in mind that if you are going to try to play with your pH, you can't do it overnight. It's just not going to happen. You apply the amendment one day and the next day you're all better. This is going to be a gradual process. You're going to have to work on it uh, over a couple growing seasons potentially. And you're really going to want to keep testing probably with a lab. Um, I wouldn't do a home test for this if you're adding and you're trying to figure out where you're at to see if it's improving because you can go too far in the wrong direction. Um, one, uh, that being said, one addition that's kind of safe across the board is, you guessed it, organic matter. Organic matter is going to have a really neutral pH. So as you're, if you're on this quest to improve your pH, organic matter is going to be a safe bet. It's just going to help bring things into balance. So that's a great place to start because organic matter is literally the answer to everything. But also, let's say you are way too alkaline. What could you add? Um, you could add things that, well, they say that sulfur is a good addition. If you're going to go to the garden store and get some sulfur, that's going to help acidify things. But you could also do the more organic route and go with things like conifer needles, oak leaves, or sawdust. I don't have a lot of oak leaves in my area, but I'm sure some of you guys do. So that's an option. Now, if you're super acidic and you're trying to raise the pH, um, then limestone is kind of the traditional recommendation. And another thing you could add is wood ash. So if you've been doing a wood stove or a campfires, you could add some of that ash to help raise that pH. That being said, you can add too much. Um, and there's a lot of, I see like on Pinterest and Google, like all these articles, how to use wood ash in your garden. And it's great, but it's not something you just want to add across the board. Wood ash is not organic matter. It's not everyone's friend. <laughs> organic matter is everybody's friend, but that doesn't apply to wood ash. So I would only apply that if you know you need to add it. And as you add it, be testing every year so you're not going overboard. Sound good? Okay. Oh, now... If you would like to do more of like a home test for pH, you don't want to do the lab option right away, a lot of garden stores or places like Home Depot are going to sell home pH test strip thingies. So I would go that route. I'm guessing they're not super expensive. I have seen some directions on the internet <laughs> of how to do a home pH test with baking soda and vinegar. And as much as I love baking soda and vinegar, because every homeschool mom does, they're great ingredients for lots of science experiments, I have some doubts, to be honest, if that's going to give you really solid data. Like, I just, I'm just concerned, like, oh, okay, it's fizzing. So that means that I have a more alkaline, I don't know, it just feels too vague to me. So if you want to try that, I mean, it's not going to hurt anything, if, if, if worse, it's going to be wasted time. But I, I'd say just go get some pH strips from your garden store and give, you, give, give yourself at least that more solid info. Alrighty, so we have talked about soil type. We've talked about pH. Other things that are really helpful um, would be to know what mineral contents you're dealing with and how much nitrogen is in your soil, how much potassium, how much carbon material. Now, unfortunately, I don't have any quick hacks to figure that out. 
I'm going to feel like I'm saying this over and over again, but your laboratory test is going to be your best bet. And that is some pretty important information. I know for me, like I said earlier, I almost ruined everything by putting too much compost in my soil. Compost is high in nitrogen. And I was just trucking along, adding tons of horse manure every year. You know, I'm always like more is more type of person, but that's not always a good thing. I was like, oh, more compost is good. So more compost is better. And I tested just in time to figure out I was right on the verge of too much nitrogen. Um, not great. So that set, that test showed me that. The test also showed me that we are low in iron in our area. I didn't know that. There was no way for me to figure that out on my own. And so once I got that little bit of information, I, it started to make sense why certain vegetables were just not thriving. Like my green beans would, they would come up and they'd get their leaves, but they just were kind of stunted and yellowish. Sure enough, that's a symptom of iron deficiency. So I started adding some amendments to my soil after that. Um, so again, laboratory testing is a great idea if you have any questions or concerns about what you're dealing with. Another great resource is just to ask experienced gardeners in your area. You know, they obviously may not have information about your exact garden plot, but generally things are the same across the board. So iron is just deficit here across the board. And um, people can usually tell you that, oh, you're a little heavy on clay in Southeast Wyoming, things like that. So talking to a pro gardener is always going to be a great thing. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the magic ingredient, aka organic matter. Because really, whenever you talk about soil or read about soil, that's the thing that comes up over and over and over again. So I think one of my first questions when I started understanding soil stuff or starting to understand it was, uh, what exactly is organic matter? Because I was like, is it just compost? Like, what, what is it? So here's the definition. It is uh, Soil organic matter is made up of living, dead, and decomposing plants, animals, and microorganisms. And there can be up to a billion microorganisms in a teaspoon of soil. I told you, this is amazing stuff. Soil is incredible. Um, so when we add organic matter, like I mentioned earlier, it improves clay, it improves sand, it improves silt, and it even just helps maintain loam. And I know for me, as I've added more organic matter over the years, I have better moisture retention, I have a better tex uh, soil texture, it's beautiful and crumbly, and it has um, more, st more structure, and it's not as prone to compaction, and it has more nutrients, and even I've seen more earthworms come and more... Uh, the good bugs show up as I have added more organic matter. As I was researching for this episode, I got some numbers for you because I know some of you love the specifics. So it says that most garden plants perform best when the soil organic matter is at least 2%. But the goal for vegetable areas should be 5%. I have never actually tried to figure out exactly what percentage I have. I think a test would tell you that, but just so you know, that's the ballpark. Um, so what constitutes organic matter? So things like compost or, you know, yard waste, broken down yard waste, 
um, kitchen scraps, grass clippings, all of those things are going to just help replenish that organic matter. So the more you add, the better. And our goal is, at, you know, as we're taking things out of the soil in the form of vegetables and, and all of that, we're putting things back in. And my goal is to be able to build my soil over time. And that's what I'm always thinking about. And for me, my raised beds have been a great encourager of that principle because I can see, well, some of it's compaction, just natural compaction, but you know, the beds, the, the soil level decreases if I'm not adding more to it. So for me, I don't want to have to go to the town near us and get a dump truck load of topsoil. That's the, that's my last resort. I want to be able to build my own soil back up. So I am adding very frequently, um, composted animal manure. I'm careful not to add too much because it can make my nitrogen out of whack. And then I'm adding mulch, lots of mulch. We're going to talk about that in a future episode and grass clippings and, um, layering and letting the things decompose and break down. And a lot of times I like to leave some of my garden plants in throughout the winter, just to add a little bit more, um, stuff to decompose. And then it, all the or microorganisms, Blah, blah, blah. microorganisms work on the roots over the winter and just help break it down. So that's what I have been doing to add organic matter. But, you know, I think the best thing you can do as a home gardener is to start a compost pile, use the yard waste, use your kitchen scraps, use your chicken poop from the coop and the rabbit manure and start creating that compost and feeding your soil. It's a super, super good thing. Um, whew, that was a lot of information. <laughs> so in future episodes in this series, we're going to talk about mulching, which is a big topic. We're going to talk about cover crops, which is also going to help improve organic matter and soil structure. Um, but I think that was enough for today. So to wrap it all up and put a pretty bow on it, I think the takeaway for you out of this episode is data is good. Knowledge is power. But if all you can do this year is work up your soil, which we're going to talk more about the specifics of that next episode, work up the soil and stick a, a seed down in there, cover it up and water it, you'll probably be just fine. That's what I did my first years. That's what so many other homesteaders do. Just take those first steps and all of this data and knowledge can fill in the gaps later. So don't be overwhelmed. Just start planning out how you can take action in your garden for this year. In the next episode, we are going to talk about breaking ground. Time to plant everything you need to know to get those seeds in the ground in a timely manner to make sure they have a good start. They don't get frozen out the first week. Um, and some creative ways you can prepare a garden spot, even if you don't have a rototiller. So we are progressing along in our gardening journey together. Thanks for listening today, friends. I really appreciate you being here. If you would like to get my homestead layout handbook, it has ideas on how big a garden should be, what you should put in there, how to set up for animals and livestock flow. You can grab that for free over at theprairiehomestead.com slash layout. And bonus, it'll connect you and I via email because I know social media is a weird place these days. So if you're avoiding social media like many people I know, 
you can get my email newsletter and we can stay in touch. And that is it for today. Thanks again for listening along. Shoot over any questions you may have or topics you'd like to hear being covered in future episodes, and we will talk again soon. 